Hey now, there we go. Okay, pretend you didn't see that. Okay, great. Well, hey there. Um, <laughs> so, in case you set too high. Okay, okay. Uh, hey there. Well, hey there, if you don't know, is Minnesota Minnesotian or Wisconsinian for high. Um, there's a point to that because my first year of college, in case you don't know, I went to Wisconsin um, through a special program that Philadelphia Biblical University offers. So I spent the whole academic year in the great Northwoods, and it was a fantastic year. Um, and some of it will actually come out in what I want to talk about. Um, so yeah, what I am going to talk about is Paul's letter to Titus, or as I like to call it, the Cliff's Notes of First and Second Timothy. Why? Because Paul's relationship to Timothy was similar to that of Titus. He addresses them both similarly in that he calls them his true children in the faith. And the, a lot of the themes and what Paul talks about in both sets of letters is a lot of the same. So it's very similar, and that's why I call it such. Um, so, starting with some groundwork. Context, context, context. The director at the Wisconsin program, this gentleman, named Mark Jalovic, is a fantastic man. He taught us intro to Bible and intro to theology. And throughout both, he emphasized context, 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 and he would do this. And it was to emphasize that it's important to, when you look at a passage, to mean, make sure that you keep it within the context and you keep its meaning and you don't put in, read into it what's not there. So let me lay down some context for you for Titus. Some geographical context. I hope this works. Okay, this is Crete. This is all the Mediterranean Sea. Titus lived around here. Paul left Titus in Crete so that he could uh, be in charge of the Cretan church. In relation, there's Greece, Athens is here, and Jerusalem is about here. So, there's where we're at. Now, when we're at is somewhere between 63 and 66 AD. And we, there's speculation that Paul could have written from two places, um, Macedonia, which is up here in northern Greece, or Nicopolis, which is down here on the coast. Either way, Paul wrote to Titus from somewhere in Greece. And... Um, Now, it's also important that we establish who some of the key characters are. We know that we have Paul and Titus, and we have this third group. This third group is called the Judaizers, and I'll get to them in a minute. So what do we know about Paul? We know that he was an apostle, and that he was a former Jew and Pharisee. He was an ethnic Jew. Titus, however, was a Gentile. He was Greek. Uh, we know Titus was Greek because... Paul says this so in Galatians when he um, discusses how he took Titus along with him to Jerusalem, um, which is related in Acts 15. So 
Titus is a student and partner of Paul. He's also a Gentile. Now, the Judaizers. Who are the Judaizers? The Judaizers were Jewish Christians who taught that Christians needed to maintain the Mosaic Law. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to obey what had already been, what Jews followed in terms of the Pentateuch, you know, Exodus to Deuteronomy, all those laws. They wanted to, they sought to incorporate it. It seemed to be a little confused as to what exactly, to them they seemed confused as to what exactly Christianity was. Was it a new religion? Is it just some new branch of Judaism? Should we, what should, they weren't sure what to do. So they, they just started teaching that it, to, in order to be a Christian, Gentiles needed to be circumcised, and they needed to obey the law. So they essentially believed that their works, by them following the law and being circumcised, that defined their righteousness. This is a false teaching, but it's not new to Paul. Paul has been addressing this issue in many of his letters he addresses it in Romans. He addresses it in Galatians. In fact, Galatians is all about this issue on how it's a false teaching. So, there's, there's our key characters. This is some of our context. We have some little bit more context to establish. The social context. Crete, being in Greece, is not uncommon that it was a place of much excess. A lot of partying, drinking, debauchery, etc., etc., but there was a small Jewish community that existed on Crete. This small Jewish community is probably what helped along this issue of the Judaizers. Because there was still this idea of, the, um, of Jewish tradition and law existing there. So Titus' mission... Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders in all the towns of the Cretan church. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what, has, what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And I guess I should clarify, I'm reading from the NIV right now. Um, so that's, that's Titus' mission. That's why Paul left him in Crete, so that he could appoint elders. And then Paul gives qualifications for elders. What should they be? What is the standard that Titus should be looking for as he's seeking out these individuals and putting them into their offices? As I read the text, I counted roughly 15 qualifications, give or take, um, that Titus was to look for in elders. This list more or less matches up with the list that Paul gives in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Uh, I should clarify, though, that um, the words bishop, elder, and overseer are synonymous. Their office is the same. Different words, but same office. Um, we can see this in uh, verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, an elder must be blameless the husband of one wife, a man of whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, 
not pursuing dishonest gain. So in two verses, while addressing the same office, Paul uses two different titles, elder and overseer. So they're different words, same office. Next, I have uh, the qualifications. I listed them out. I'm not going to go through them one by one. But I would like to point out that as I've read through the Paul's letters in various occasions, these qualifications really match up with uh, the way in which Paul instructs all believers to conduct themselves. Being uh, blame, uh, yeah, being blameless, you know, uh, being sober or nonviolent, uh, being patient, not quick-tempered. These are things that Paul reiterates again and again and again through his letters, except now he adds them to this list of qualifications for these elders. So why were these elders needed? And we know from verse 5 that it was to straighten out what had been going on. But here we come back to the Judaizers. This is why uh, explaining who this group was, was is important at the beginning. is because Paul talks about there being false and rebellious teachers, and he describes them as being mere talkers or deceivers. And this isn't necessarily just uh, in regards to the Judaizers, but it, it could be understood that there were a great many false teachings going on. And the Judaizers are just one small part of this issue. So, but Paul makes a, makes a point to emphasize that, especially those of the circumcision group. The false doctrines and teachings were serious enough that they were disrupting uh, whole houses. Um, Verse 11, Paul says this. um, I'll start in verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. So, this was a serious issue, and Paul needed this, to, this issue to be squashed. I mean, he says, must, must be silenced. This was not just some issue like, well, take care of it when you get to it. No, it's like, you need to do this right away. This is your top priority. And so, oh, wrong button. So that's why Paul says the elders were needed. He says that these elders, we need, you need to appoint these elders so that you can maintain sound doctrine and you can refute the false doctrine. Because of the similar issue, I'll, I'll um, refer to Galatians. In Galatians, um, Paul discusses how... Um, yeah, okay, I don't know, that train of thought just totally jumped the tracks. So I'm just going to continue on. So this is a serious issue, and the elders were needed to maintain the pure doctrine. It was to maintain the fact that, maintain the gospel that Paul had preached to them initially. This was um, false doctrine, false gospel. This was not something to be taken lightly. 
I want to take a little bit to discuss verse 12, because I found this very interesting, because I found it very confusing. In verse 12, Paul says this. In regards, after he's talking about these false teachers who are disrupting the community and causing serious issues, he says, even one of their own, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always lazy, or always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And he, from... He, he quotes this, pro- this, um, this prophet, and I'm thinking, who is this prophet? So I had to go do a little digging. Well, I found out that this prophet, his name, oh, darn it, there I go again, Epimenides. Now, Epimenides was a native Cretan. He was native to the island of Crete, and he was a semi-mythological playwright and philosopher. Now, what I mean by semi-mythological, part of the story I read was that it was kind of like Rumpelstiltskin. He fell asleep for a, lo- a 70-some years and wakes up, and he's, like, all enlightened or something. I, so there's, like, there's, his whole backstory is kind of uh, disguised in this fog of myth. Um, but nonetheless, he writes, he was a playwright, and he wrote, um, he wrote this play in regards to the Cretans themselves. And the quote that Paul uses is in reference to Epimenides' uh, um, opinion of the Cretans themselves. Epimenides had an issue with that the, the Cretans were, they didn't believe that Zeus was immortal, and they built a tomb for Zeus. And so Epimenides puts out this railing judgment against them that they're lazy and they're liars because Zeus, of course, is immortal. And, you know, they're spreading this lie. Well, Paul takes this quote and he turns it around and he puts it in regards to these false teachers, these Judaizers. But this isn't the only time Paul cites Epimenides. He also does it in Acts 17 when he's at, um, in Athens, uh, in regards to the unknown God. Uh, he says, um, he, he cites it then. I didn't write out what exactly he, he says, but he quotes him there also. So he takes this, this judgment of Epimenides, and he turns it back onto these false teachers. And I found this very interesting, not just because, you know, it's, it was mysterious and I didn't know what it was, but it, to me it gave me a little insight as to Paul's education outside of his theological upbringing as a Jew. It, it kind of showed me, like, oh, wow, he's actually really—it showed me that he was well-read. You know, he was able to take something that he learned outside of his religious uh, education and apply it to his, apo- uh, his apologetics, his way of evangelizing. So now we come to uh, Paul's instructions for the— elders. And he gives three instructions. Just three. He says, be of sound doctrine, pay no attention to Jewish myths, and pay no attention to those who reject the truth. The first one, to be of sound doctrine, I I look at it and I see a baseline foundational instruction. He says, be of sound doctrine. This is your foundation on which you stand. This is 
this sound doctrine is the gospel that I preach to you, that Titus has preached to you. This is where you should start. The second, the second command, the second instruction is more direct. It's more pointed. It's in regard directly to the issues of the Judaizers and how they were influencing the Christian church. He says, pay no attention to these Jewish myths. They're not true. Paul makes a point in many of his letters that the, we are, excuse me, um, we are, in Christ we are dead to the law. And by law, he means the law of Moses. It, we are free from the bondage of the law. So he says, don't pay attention to them. It's not, it's not important to you anymore. It, you're not bound to this law. So don't pay attention to it. And the third one is more broader. And I, I see it as in regards to cover, generally covering the bases of anything, any other false teaching he might have missed. Just don't pay attention to those who reject the truth. Again, the truth points back to the first instruction, the sound doctrine, the gospel, their foundation. If somebody has anything different to say than what you were taught first by me, ignore it. Because it's not true, it's false. So, now, you guys get to ask, so what? Great, thank you. Well, I'm glad you asked because I was going to tell you anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's two points to this. First, your actions do not determine your righteousness. They prove it. What do I mean by this? I mean that Paul makes a point to say that the works of the law, upholding the Mosaic law, does not make you justified before God. It does not cause you to be righteous. And now, I'm putting this back in context of the, 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 the text. Paul says it doesn't matter what you do, how you do it, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. Your works, whatever you do or don't do, doesn't define your righteousness. The only way you're righteous is in Christ. So, the purity and righteousness are internal. They start here. I knew I was going to do that. Your purity and your righteousness start here. It starts in the heart. And the only way it starts in the heart is in Christ. It goes, it goes back to first, uh, verse in First uh, John 4.19. We love because he first loves us. Well, that love starts here. That love can only start because, you know, we are loved by God first. The, now, the, I have in quotes there, heart circumcision. What's heart circumcision? I had a professor while in Wisconsin who discussed this concept of heart circumcision. The Jews were physically circumcised. It's what distinguished them from everyone else. It's why you had Jews and Gentiles, and from a Jewish standpoint, there was no one in between. It was one or the other, and it was your physical circumcision that defined that. And so, what happens with us in Christ is that what distinguishes us from everyone else is our heart. Going back to 
how our purity and our righteousness are internal. Our hearts, essentially, when we are in Christ, our hearts are circumcised. It's our hearts lead to our actions and our words and our thoughts, and that is what distinguishes us. It's like that hymn, they'll know we're Christians by our love, because love is something that you actively do. It's a verb. It's something that you have to be conscious to do. So the, our circumcised hearts is what defines us as being of God, belonging to God, being separate from others. <laughs> the other point is the big one. There's still plenty of false doctrine in the society today. I'm sure this is a huge newsflash to everyone, but it's true, and it, it's, it needs to be addressed, because sometimes we tend to forget. You know, things that are obvious and we see all the time, we get numb to. Well, it's still there. False doctrines still exist. We don't necessarily have Judaizers saying we need to be physically circumcised, we need to obey the Jewish laws, but there's those who still develop rules that say you need to do this or this or that or the other thing, and this will, sh this will demonstrate that y you are good and righteous. And there's a term for that. It's called legalism. And it, I've seen it in action. It doesn't work. It, it's, it's you trying to be a good person. It's you trying to define your holiness, define your righteousness by the things you do, how you dress, what you look at, what you listen to, whatever, what instruments you play. It's, it doesn't work, because that's not what God's concerned with. He's concerned with where your heart is, because where your heart is, that's where everything else is going to come from. It's going to define how you interact with the guy on the street, or, you know, the person in school, or your coworker, or even the person sitting next to you right here. You know, that define you know, where your heart is in Christ will define everything else. The other thing is that false doctrine... I'd see it as something like a virus or a disease. It, it has no prejudice. It doesn't care. It doesn't care what your denomination is. It doesn't care if you're Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic or uh, Presbyterian or even BFC. You know, false doctrine can sneak in anywhere. It doesn't care... Um, about your race, if you're black, white, Latino, or Asian, or some mix thereof. It doesn't matter, it doesn't care about your politics, or whether you're Republican or Democrat. It's, it's gonna try, false doctrine exists, and it, it gets in to you and your community, and it spreads. And here we come full circle, and we come back to the text. We come back to what Paul is writing to Titus. Because false doctrine is so... I wish I had a thesaurus. <laughs> it, because it's so... Um, rooted, so it spreads so much and so fast and so deep. Paul says, you need 
elders. You need strong, godly men to lead the church. And that's why Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders. That's why he gives them a standard by which to choose the elders. And that is why we here or at some independent church or wherever, that's why they have, and we have elders. It's why we have the form of government we have. It's so that we can have people that are strong, godly men who are in a place of authority that can, in a sense, put a stop to, put in check anything that might be detrimental to the church body as a whole. But it doesn't stop with just the elders. Paul, it's meant to go to everyone. Paul told Titus to appoint the elders. Titus was to instruct the elders. Paul instructs Titus. Titus instructs the elders. The elders, in turn, then instruct their congregations. So that their congregations, their lay people, can be strong in the gospel, in that sound doctrine that Paul instructed them to hold to. So that not just those in authority are able to stop and refute false doctrine, but everyone within a church community can refute and stop false doctrine. For the next couple of weeks, I will be working through the next two chapters to, well, one and a half-ish chapters of Titus um, for these evening series, but um, tonight I would like to finish with a prayer from a prayer book called Valley of Vision, and um, I was introduced to some of these prayers while in Wisconsin. We would have a what we call family time, where all 32 students would get together with the staff and we'd have a time of worship and prayer and usually whatever professor was with us that week would share a brief devotional with us. And it was just a time for us to be together and to worship together. And the staff, Mark, the guy I showed you, would print off one of these prayers each week or so and the, the prayers are absolutely beautiful. And I use them myself when, for my personal devotions, I'll, I'll open up with one of these prayers. Um, so I had, I, after that year, I had to get myself a copy. And so I'd like to close with one tonight, and I'll plan to close with one my next two nights, too. So uh, please pray with me. O Lord, may I never fail to come to the knowledge of the truth. Never rest in a system of doctrine, however scriptural, that does not bring or further salvation. Or teach me to, de- teach me to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Or help me to live soberly, righteously, godly. Never rely on my own convictions and resolutions, but be strong in thee and in thy might. 
never cease to find thy grace sufficient in all my duties, trials, and conflicts. Never forget to repair to thee in all my spiritual distresses and outward troubles. In all the dissatisfactions experienced in creature comforts, never fail to retreat to him who is full of grace and truth, the friend that loveth at all times, who is touched with feelings of my infirmities and can do exceedingly abundantly for me. Never confine my religion to extraordinary occasions, but acknowledge thee in all my ways. Never limit my devotions to particular seasons, but be in thy fear all the day long. Never be godly only on the Sabbath or in thy house, but on every day, abroad and at home. Never make piety a dress, but a habit. Not only a habit, but a nature, and not only a nature, but a life. Do good to me by all thy dispensations, by all means of grace, by worship, prayers, praises. And at last, let me enter that world where is no temple, but only thy glory and the Lamb's. Amen. Good evening. <laughs>